Chapter 27 of The Revolt of the Angels. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Revolt of the Angels by Anatole France. Translated by Mrs. Wilfred Jackson. Chapter 27 Wherein We Shall See Revealed a Dark and Secret Mystery and Learn How It Comes About That Empires Are Often Hurled Against Empires and Ruin Falls Alike Upon the Victors and the Vanquished and the wise reader if such there be which i doubt will meditate upon this important utterance a war is a matter of business the angels had dispersed at the foot of the slopes at moudon seated on the grass arcady and zita watched the seine flowing by the willows in this world said arcady in this world which we call a cosmos though it is but a microcosm no thinking being can imagine that he is able to destroy even one atom at the utmost all we can hope for is that we shall succeed in modifying here and there the rhythm of some group of atoms and the arrangement of certain cells that when one thinks of it must be the limit of our great enterprise and when we shall have set up the contradictor in the place of yaldabaoth we shall have done no more. Zeta is the evil in the nature of things or in their arrangement. That is what we ought to know. Zeta, I am profoundly troubled. Arcadi, replied Zeta, if to act we had to know the secret of nature, one would never act at all, and neither would one live, since to live is to act. Arcadi, is your resolution failing you already? Arcadi assured the beautiful angel that he was resolved to plunge the demiurge into eternal darkness. A motor car passed by on the road, followed by a long trail of dust. It stopped before the two angels, and the hooked nose of Baron Everdingen appeared at the window. "'Good morning, my celestial friends, good morning,' said the capitalist. "'Sons of heaven, I am pleased to meet you.' I have a word of importance to say to you. Do not remain idle. Do not go to sleep. Arm! Arm! You may be surprised by Yaldabaoth. You have a big war fund. Employ it without stint. I have just learned that the Archangel Michael has given large orders in heaven for thunderbolts and arrows. If you take my advice, you will procure fifty thousand more electrophores. I will take the order. Good day, angels. Long live the celestial country. And Baron Everdingen flew by the flowery shores of Louvesienne in the company of a pretty actress. Is it true that they are taking up arms at the demiurges? asked Arcadi. It may be, replied Zita, that up there another Baron Everdingen is inciting to arms. The guardian angel of young Maurice remained pensive for some moments. Then he murmured, "'Can it be that we are the sport of financiers?' "'Pooh!' said the beautiful archangel. "'War is a business. It has always been a business.' Then they discussed at length the means of executing their immense enterprise. Rejecting disdainfully the anarchistic proceedings of Prince Istar, 
they conceived a formidable and sudden invasion of the kingdom of heaven by their enthusiastic and well-drilled troops. Now Baratan, the innkeeper of La Jeanchère, who had let the entertainment hall to the rebellious angels, was in the employ of the secret police. In the reports he furnished to the prefecture, he denounced the members of this secret meeting as meditating an attack on a certain person whom they described as obtuse and cruel, and whom they called à la balotte. The agent believed this to be a pseudonym denoting either the President of the Republic or the Republic itself. The conspirators had unanimously given voice to threats against Ella Balot, and one of them, a very dangerous individual, well known in anarchist circles, who had already several convictions against him on account of writings and speeches of a seditious nature, and who was known as Prince Istar, or the Kerub, had brandished a bomb of very small caliber which seemed to contain a formidable machine. The other conspirators were unknown to Baratin, notwithstanding the fact that he frequented revolutionary circles. Many among them were very young men, mere beardless youths. There were two who, it appeared, had spoken with conspicuous vehemence. A certain Arcadi, dwelling in the Rue Saint-Jacques, and a woman of easy virtue called Zita, living at Montmartre, both without visible means of subsistence. The affair seemed sufficiently serious to the prefect of police to make him think it necessary to confer without delay with the president of the council. The Third Republic was then going through one of those climacteric periods during which the French nation, enamored of authority and worshipping force, gave itself up for lost because it was not governed enough, and clamored loudly for a savior. The president of the council, and minister of justice, was only too eager to be that longed-for savior. Still, for him to play that part, it was first necessary that there should be a danger to face. Thus the news of a plot was highly welcome to him. He questioned the prefect of police on the character and importance of the affair. The prefect of police explained that the people seemed to have money, intelligence, and energy, but that they talked too much and were too numerous to undertake secret and concerted action. The minister, leaning back in his armchair, pondered on the matter. The empire writing-table at which he was seated, the ancient tapestry which covered the walls, the clock and the candelabra of the restoration period, all in this traditional setting reminded him of those great principles of government which remain immutable throughout the succession of regime, of stratagem, and of bluff. After brief reflection, he concluded that the plot must be allowed to grow and take shape, that it would even be fitting to nurse it, to embroider it, to color it, and only to stifle it after having extracted every possible advantage from it. He instructed the prefect of police to watch the affair closely, to render him an account of what went on from day to day, and to confide himself to the role of informer. "'I rely on your well-known prudence,' 
Observe and do not intervene. The minister lit a cigarette. He quite reckoned, with the help of this plot, on silencing the opposition, strengthening his own influence, diminishing that of his colleagues, humiliating the President of the Republic, and becoming the savior of his country. The prefect of police undertook to follow the ministerial instructions, vowing inwardly all the while to act in his own way. He had a watch put upon the individuals pointed out by Baratin, and commanded his agents not to intervene, come what might. Perceiving that he was a marked man, Prince Istar, who united prudence with strength, withdrew the bombs from the gutter outside his window, where he had hidden them, and changing from motor-bus to tube, from tube to motor-bus, and choosing the most cunningly circuitous route, at length deposited his machines with the angelic musician. Every time he left his house in the Rue Saint-Jacques, Arcadi found a man of exaggerated smartness at his door, with yellow gloves, and in his tie a diamond bigger than the regent. Being a stranger to the things of this world, the rebellious angel paid no attention to the circumstance. But young Maurice Desparvieu, who had undertaken the task of guarding his guardian angel, viewed this gentleman with uneasiness, for he equaled in assiduity and surpassed in vigilance that Monsieur Mignon, who had formerly allowed his inquisitive gaze to wander from the ram's heads on the Hôtel de la Sordière in the Rue Garancière to the apse of the Church of St. Sulpice. Maurice came two and three times a day to see Arcadi in his furnished rooms, warning him of the danger and urging him to change his abode. Every evening he took his angel to night restaurants, where they supped with ladies of easy virtue. There young Desparvieux would foretell the issue of some coming glove fight, and afterwards exert himself to demonstrate to Arcadi the existence of God, the necessity for religion, and the beauties of Christianity, and adjure him to renounce his impious and criminal undertakings, wherefrom, he said, he would reap but bitterness and disappointment. "'For really,' said the young apologist, "'if Christianity were false, it would be known.' The ladies approved of Maurice's religious sentiments, and when the handsome Arcadi uttered some blasphemy in language they could understand, they put their hands to their ears and bade him be silent, for fear of being struck down with him. For they believed that God, in his omnipotence and sovereign goodness, taking sudden vengeance against those who insulted him, was quite capable of striking down the innocent with the guilty without meaning it. Sometimes the angel and his guardian took supper with the angelic musician. Maurice, who remembered from time to time that he was Bouchot's lover, was displeased to see Arcadi taking liberties with the singer. She had allowed him to do so ever since the day when the angelic musician, having had the little flowery couch repaired, Arcadi and Bouchot had made it a foundation for their friendship. Maurice, who loved Madame des Abel a great deal, 
also loved Bouchard a little, and was rather jealous of Arcadi. Now jealousy is a feeling natural to man and beast, and causes them, however slight the attack, keen unhappiness. Therefore, suspecting the truth, which Bouchot's temperament and the angel's character made sufficiently obvious, he overwhelmed Arcadi with sarcasm and abuse, reproaching him with the immorality of his ways. Arcadi answered, tranquilly, that it was difficult to subject physiological impulses to perfectly defined rules, and that moralists encountered great difficulties in the case of certain natural necessities. Moreover, added Arcadi, I freely acknowledge that it is almost impossible systematically to constitute a natural moral law. Nature has no principles. She furnishes us with no reason to believe that human life is to be respected. Nature, in her indifference, makes no distinction between good and evil. "'You see, then,' replied Maurice, "'that religion is necessary.' "'Moral law,' replied the angel, "'which is supposed to be revealed to us, "'is drawn in reality from the grossest empiricism. "'Custom alone regulates morals. "'What heaven prescribes is merely the consecration of ancient customs.' The divine law, promulgated amid fireworks on some Mount Sinai, is never anything but the codification of human prejudice. And from this fact, namely that morals change, religions which endure for a long time, such as Judeo-Christianity, vary their moral law. At any rate, said Maurice, whose intelligence was swelling visibly, you will grant me that religion prevents much profligacy and crime? Except when it promotes crime, as, for instance, the murder of Iphigenia. Arcadi, exclaimed Maurice, when I hear you argue, I rejoice that I am not an intellectual. Meanwhile, Theophile, with his head bent over the piano, his face hidden by the long fair veil of his hair, bringing down from on high his inspired hands onto the keys, was playing and singing the full score of Aline, Queen of Golconda. Prince Istar used to come to their friendly reunions, his pockets filled with bombs and bottles of champagne, both of which he owed to the liberality of Baron Everdingen. Bouchot received the carob with pleasure, since he saw in him the witness and the trophy of the victory she had gained on the little flowered couch. He was to her as the severed head of Goliath in the hands of the youthful David, and she admired the prince for his cleverness as an accompanist, his vigor, which she had subdued, and his prodigious capacity for drink. One night, when young Desparvieux took his angel home in his car from Bouchot's house to the lodgings in the Rue Saint-Jacques, it was very dark. Before the door, the diamond in the spy's necktie glittered like a beacon. Three cyclists, standing in a group under its rays, made off in diverse directions at the car's approach. 
the angel took no notice, but Maurice concluded that Arcadi's movements interested various important people in the state. He judged the danger to be pressing, and at once made up his mind. The next morning he came to seek the suspect, to take him to the Rue de Rome. The angel was in bed. Maurice urged him to dress and to follow him. "'Come,' said he. "'This house is no longer safe for you. You are watched. One of these days you will be arrested. Do you wish to sleep in jail? No? Well, then, come. I will put you in a safe place.' The spirit smiled with some little compassion on his naive preserver. "'Do you not know,' he said, "'that an angel broke open the doors of the prison where Peter was confined, and delivered the apostle? Do you believe me, Maurice, to be inferior in power to that heavenly brother of mine? And do you suppose that I am unable to do for myself what he did for the fishermen of the Lake of Tiberias?' do not count on it arcady he did it miraculously or by a stroke of luck as a modern historian of the church has it but no matter i will follow you just allow me to burn a few letters and to make a parcel of some books i shall need he threw some papers in the fireplace put several volumes in his pockets and followed his guide to the car which was waiting for them not far off, outside the College of France. Maurice took the wheel. Imitating the Carib's prudence, he made so many windings and turnings, and so many rapid twists, that he put all the swift and numerous cyclists, speeding in pursuit, off the scent. At length, having left wheel marks in every direction all over the town, he stopped in the Rue de Rome, before the first door-flat, where the angel had first appeared. On entering the dwelling which he had left eighteen months before to carry out his mission, Arcadi remembered the irreparable past, and breathing in the scent used by Gilbert, his nostrils throbbed. He asked after Madame de Aubel. "'She is very well,' replied Maurice a little plumper and very much more beautiful for it. She still bears you a grudge for your forward behavior. I hope that she will one day forgive you, as I have forgiven you, and that she will forget your offense. But she is still very annoyed with you. Young Desparvieu did the honors of his flat to his angel with the manners of a well-bred man and the tender solicitude of a friend. He showed him the folding bed which was opened every evening in the entrance hall and pushed into a dark cupboard in the morning. He showed him the dressing table with its accessories, the bath, the linen cupboard, the chest of drawers, gave him the necessary information regarding the heating and lighting, told him that his meals would be brought and the rooms cleaned by the concierge, and showed him which bell to press when he required that person's services. He told him also that he must consider himself at home and receive whom he wished. End of chapter 27